Go to everydaynovelist.com slash support to join the madness. <laughs> Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1017. Hello, hello. Today we have more from Simon, who asks... With the online mobs going after people who write outside of their race, gender orientation, etc., are we teaching writers to stick to their own personal defaults? In my case, most of my characters are very sketchily described physically, other than key features like build and fleshed out by who they are and what they do, so I hope that lets people assign whatever appearance feels right. But then I'm writing fantasy and science fiction, so it's much easier than writing something set in the real world. I guess I'm asking whether the cost of trying to write something outside of your own experience might just become too high. And as I write that sentence, it chills me. It's the opposite of what we want writers to do. Yes. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, but ideology, especially ideological purity, is the death of art. It's the death of good storytelling and whatnot. And that's an, there's an interesting interplay between ideolo- um, ideology and art. Because ideology, when properly integrated into the artistic imagination, can be tremendous fuel. A lot of the great stories in history, a lot of the great stories that we grew up with, are suffused with ideology. They're written by people who have something to say. Sometimes what that thing is is grand and philosophical. Sometimes what that thing is is small and personal. But the ability of ideas to inspire and to stimulate the artistic imagination cannot be overstated. Some great novels that we've talked about time and again on this podcast, like Huckleberry Finn, The Scarlet Letter, just about anything written by the mid-century science fiction greats. Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Frank Herbert. They're all deeply steeped in one kind of ideology or another. Because these people being great imagineers, being people who had a very firm view of the world, they were able to tell stories that explored, explained, and jumped off from that worldview. The idea that you want to be telling stories that have a view from nowhere is really appealing to at least people of a certain kind of mindset, especially early on in their career. But it doesn't really ever happen. Almost everybody has an ideology that if they were pressed, they could articulate it. They might have to think a while and really delve down and do some introspection to find out what it is that they believe, partly because most of the time our worldviews and our ideologies are the waters in which we swim. 
Now, at the first stage of doing that kind of delve down, it's very common to more or less accidentally write propaganda, where we write in service to our ideology. And propaganda and art just do not belong together. They don't work well together. And the reason they don't work well together is that all ideologies are at least a second-degree abstraction, if not more. They're a model that we have built of the world. And the world never hews closely enough to any model to be a perfect embodiment of it. That's why a lot of the most resonant and lasting and strong ideological books tend to focus on a little corner of the ideology. George Orwell, 1984. Orwell was a socialist. And he was a socialist writing a polemic against communism, especially as practiced by Stalin in Russia at the time. But he, the work is not an extillation of socialism. It's not even as Animal Farm is an allegory condemning communism. Or to be specific, Animal Farm is an allegorical chronicling of the communist revolution in Russia starting in about 1916 and going forward through the accession of Stalin and the purges. Instead, what you see in 1984 is a focusing down on one important piece of the tension between Orwell's worldview and ideology and what he saw as being the rising threat in his own ideological camp, the socialist and communist left. And that is the issue of freedom of thought. Freedom of thought was a basic value that Orwell had that sort of transcended the ideology he consciously espoused, but it in turn is rooted in a deeper ideology, that of English liberalism, which developed during the Enlightenment, and uh, the phrase free thinker used to really mean something. It meant someone who was willing to adopt positions that were not in accordance with the ideological orthodoxy of the day. Most books that really, really say something that resonates are books that are working from, or they're written by or working from a free thinkery perspective. But not all of them. Some of them are perfect encapsulations of the ideology of the day, of the dominant narrative of the day. A great example of this are the Harry Potter books. They're the perfect encapsulation of late 20th century liberal ideology of the um, millennial mentality, which is kind of ironic given that Rowling is an older Gen Xer. But Nonetheless, um, it also served as a template for a lot of the millennial worldview. So there's nothing particularly wrong with ideology intersecting with art. The problem comes when ideology is a straitjacket for art, when you feel obligated to recapitulate the shibboleths of the culture you're writing in and for, often because you're afraid of treading on the wrong toes. The reason people go to stories, the major reason people go to stories, is because it gives them at least a partial escape 
Stories tell truths that people are afraid to admit to themselves. Stories allow people to go on adventures that they may be afraid to or unable to go on themselves. It allows them to explore worlds and ideas that aren't easily explorable any other way. Those ideas can be old, like you see with the Star Wars films. Those ideas can be new, like you see with some of the stuff in the Star Wars films. Those um, one of the great appeals of 20th century golden age science fiction at the time it was written is it took the then current super techno-optimism of the post-war period where Western liberalism was in full flower having just defeated communism and fascism and proving itself viable for another uh, set of generations. It was not the first time liberalism had come under attack since the Enlightenment. It was merely the latest round, and it was the bloodiest round, and the people who came out of that on top were flying high and felt very few constraints over what they were allowed to speculate that this ideology, this worldview, this way of interacting with the universe might have gone on to achieve. Conquering the stars, bringing peace and justice to all people, establishing an egalitarian society with maximum freedom for personal realization while constraining the, the destructive impulses of personal realization. That's your Star Trek type of future and also sometimes peering into the darker corners of the human soul and wondering what part of that which we think that we've conquered might come roaring back as the ground conditions of civilization change. Could slavery come back? Could servitude and exploitation come back? Could monarchy come back? Could any of the things that we now thought were anathema become rational, become the obvious right way again? And what would that mean for the rest of the ideas in the worldview? And what would that mean for the individuals who had to live and breathe and have adventures in these worlds? The power of the mob to try to censor artists and freethinkers has always been a persistent threat. It's been a persistent threat since the beginning of recorded history. One of the reasons that, say, for example, the gospel stories about Jesus being crucified for saying things that you weren't supposed to say has such great mythic resonance is it's a pattern that we've seen repeated time and time again throughout history that humans had seen repeated throughout history before and since. The seemingly arbitrary exercise of authority to squash ideas that were true, that had um, the power to move crowds, and the danger that that movement of crowds posed to those in authority. It didn't really matter what the ideas were. The fact that there are ideas that are always kind of in the air, they're true things that could destabilize the model of the world as it currently sits, is this ever-present fear for anyone who is comfortable in whatever the current paradigm is. And those things are always there because every reigning paradigm is a set of compromises and trade-offs between what cannot be ignored and what can safely be mythologized away. 
And the priorities of the governing culture and civilization kind of dictate those range of available options. And it's always a much narrower range than the actual truth of the world, the actual truth of human nature, and things like that. So, yes, the online mobs and the current ideological orthodoxy is trying to train artists to stick to the party line every bit as much as and using many of the same tactics as what the moral scolds did to Christian artists in the 1980s and 1990s. And if you ever want to read anything, if you ever want to read something that's an utter travesty to good art and to good talent, check out the writings of someone like Frank Peretti from the 1980s. It's total ideological claptrap. Two generations earlier, you had artists like, in fact, all from the same working group. You had J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers, who were incredible artists, all happened to be fairly conservative Christians, but that didn't inhibit their willingness to go and do things that the folks in their churches felt were transgressive. And if you read the proceedings of the Inklings, as recorded by Humphrey Carpenter, they did get in trouble from time to time. They even got in trouble with each other. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien had a major falling out over the screw tape letters, and Lewis, being a bit of a vindictive son of a bitch, dedicated the screw tape letters to J.R.R. Tolkien out of spite, because Tolkien thought that what Lewis was doing was satanic, and Lewis thought that what he was doing was angelic. So, you know, these things happen. People have these ideological wars. If you're wanting to write stuff that catches people, that tells stories, that transport them, and that hold their attention, the one thing you can't afford to be doing is feeding them exactly what they get everywhere else. That makes you boring. You have to have something else to say. You don't have to be preaching it. But you have to have something else to say, and sometimes, like in the current madness, the thing you have to say could be as simple as having a main character whom you don't share a background with, or whom you may not share an ideology or a worldview with, where you're taking your readers into the mind of someone who is the other. It's an incredibly powerful thing that you can do as a writer, and it's something that no rigid orthodoxy can tolerate. So yeah, there could be costs. You could be anathematized. You could be the victim of a moral crusade. At the moment, if you step on the wrong toes, you could even get debanked. But if you're just going to be telling the same stories that everyone else is telling, then why are you writing? You're writing because you have things in you that you want to get out. You have ideas that you want to explore. You have adventures that you wish you could have. One of the real travesties of the current reigning orthodoxy is that things like the hero's journey and the heroine's journey and the self-actualized hero and individual competence run contra-narrative. The narrative that prefers to extol victimhood, not to champion victims and their triumph over their victimization, but to extol the state of victimhood itself. 
very important distinction. The classic heroine's journey is a triumph over victimization. The current orthodoxy is the canonization and the reification of victimhood as a sacred status. It's kind of like what you heard Mother Teresa talking about in those interviews in the 1990s when she said that the reason that the missionaries of charity did not give material help, job training, or other sort of hand-up type assistance to the people that came to stay at their hostels was that it was through experiencing and witnessing the suffering of the downtrodden that the nuns re-experienced and connected with the image of Christ, whose body was broken and whose suffering was the salvation of the world. What you're seeing now is just that mentality transposed into a secular context. It's absolute crap for storytelling. And, uh, yeah, you would do well to ignore that. Now, see, here's the thing. We all worry about being canceled. It can be... The prospect of having the mob face you down is terrifying. If you live somewhere, you work in an industry where the mob is particularly active, it can be really terrifying. But let's get real. Unless someone you know is looking for reasons to take you down that have nothing to do with your art, and stumble upon your art and use it as a pretext, the only way that you're going to get into a position where the mob really goes after you is if you achieve enough notoriety that you've got an audience that you will be able to get to follow you off-platform into some of the more difficult to maintain independent channels. Unless you're publishing traditionally YA fiction, oh, in, God, in which yeah. case you can be published, you can be canceled before you even exist as a writer. Well, okay, there's that, but why publish traditionally in this climate? I mean, uh, I wouldn't there, do it. There is that. I know personally at least seven authors who have been canceled in this way, who have had to take their entire income independent, and they've done pretty well. Now they're hustlers. A couple of them are hucksters, and. Um, they're all kind of weird guys, but they pull it off, and they showed that it can be done. I, I want to add, uh, well, a less philosophical and political mm. answer to this. Oh, yes, please. Absolutely, 100% right outside your experience. Your experience is boring, at least to <laughs> you, because you've experienced it. And on a broader level, the middle-class suburban experience is possibly the most boring experience ever known to humankind, aside from being a monk. <laughs> and I think a monk is more interesting. That's a good point. Life in a monastery is more interesting than, than a suburban life. And, and Trixie apparently agrees. But on a more specific level, the things about you that are really interesting, you are not going to realize what they are unless you're very introspective until you are writing stuff that is outside of you. It will take that to access the parts of your experience that are truly interesting to other people, and that will make for good stories. That's a really good point. And the thing that typifies the suburban middle-class existence, it doesn't even have to be suburban, it can be relatively urban or exurban, but the thing that typifies the middle-class existence is um, incredible material comfort. And as Duke Leto says in um, Dune, there is something that sleeps within us under conditions of comfort that is only awakened by change. 
And one of the reasons that people who are incredibly material com- materially comfortable gravitate to fiction in all of its forms is it offers an escape from comfort. No. Now, and we're, that's true even when we're talking about comfort reads. Comfort reads are not things that are devoid of danger or excitement. They're things that we go to to assuage the existential angst that's caused by a life of too much of the wrong kind of comfort and the wrong kind of pain. Um, if you're always in a comfortable bed, your muscles atrophy, you get bed sores. If you're always in a comfortable life, your soul kind of atrophies and gets bed sores. You have to at least psychically leave the bounds of safety in order to find out who you are. And that's the service that an author or a screenwriter, if they're any good, is providing for their audience. You are the travel agent for the soul. So don't let the bastards grind you down. Thank you very much for the question, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you. Dateline. The future. Humankind stretches out to the stars. Maybe they go on generation ships. Maybe they live on space stations. Maybe terraforming bases dominate the worlds of tomorrow. In these hostile places, only two things seem certain. With people come conflicts. And in manufactured environments, the wrong kind of conflict will damage your air supply. So forget regular guns, needle lasers, ray guns, and anything else that can screw up your habitat. I want stories where the violence and conflict depend on ingeniously adapting ancient weapons to future environments, where this technological shift solves old social problems and creates new ones, and where cultures and religions arise around those weapons and provide them contexts, both accepted and outlaw, within their societies. Give me swashbucklers, knife fighters, booby trappers, baton wielders, pirates, mafiosos, Robin Hoods, cops, priests, robbers, fugitives, and assassins. Give me swords in space. This is a paying market. Submit your story to editor at everydaynovelist.com. Be sure to use the phrase swords in space in the subject line. 8,000 words maximum, 2,000 words minimum. See you on the slush pile.